This morning's sermon text comes from the book of Revelation in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let us hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus the reading of the word of God ends. We come to the fifth church in the book of Revelation, where Jesus, who was walking among the candlesticks, he was walking among the churches. And as he walked among the churches, he was inspecting the churches. And we see he gives commendations where he commends the churches for what they're doing right, for what they're doing good. And then he also gives rebuke for the things that they're doing wrong or for the things uh, that they are allowing to infiltrate uh, their membership and within what they're tolerating. And so the church of Sardis, it's a very short letter that's given, but right off the bat, what we recognize is the church of Sardis is not commended in the beginning. Most of the commendations that come to the other churches are in the beginning of their letters. But the church of Sardis is not. Jesus, who is walking among the candlesticks and inspecting the churches, he looks at the church of Sardis and he has these words for them. He gives those words to the messenger, to the angel, of the church in Sardis, the pastor, the one who would stand before the congregation, before the church, and say, this is what the Lord says when he inspects you. When he has inspected you, this is who is speaking. It's not the pastor or the angel who is speaking, but it is the Lord. And who is the Lord? According to verse 1, he's the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. It's always very important that we pay attention to the imagery that is given in Revelation and that we get the meaning and the understanding of that imagery, not from our own discernment, but from the Word of God itself. And the Word of God tells us that the seven spirits of God in Isaiah is speaking about the sevenfold spirits of God, that He is the Spirit of the Lord. He is the Holy Spirit, perfect, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. 
and him in his perfect holiness, he comes together with the seven stars, the churches in their hand. And Jesus is saying that I have power over that union. I have power over that. I'm a faithful witness that I can speak and my word is sure because I am the one who has the seven spirits of God. What was being spoken of in Isaiah, I possess that. I possess the sevenfold spirits of God. So what he's going to say to the church of Sardis is you don't have it because I have it and I can recognize those who do. And so the church of Sardis was very unique because it belonged to a city, a city that had a rich history, that had, had, had been around for many, 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 many years. But yet what it gets its name or its reputation from, it's its geographical position. The church of Sardis sat on a hill and a valley was in front of it, and all around it were mountains, a fortress of mountains, if you will. So much that the world would deem the city of Sardis as an impregnable city. No one can take down this city. This city has all the power. That's what everyone would say about the city of Sardis. But the city of Sardis was sacked twice. It was sacked in the beginning uh, by a watchman who was to be watching over the city, watching for enemies that would be coming from the valley. And he would be up upon uh, the mountains or on the cliffs, and he would be looking down in the valley because that would be the only way that the enemy could get up. And they were so comfortable with their position that the, the watchman falls asleep, the helmet falls, and it goes down the cliff. And when the watchman wakes up, he goes down the cliff, gets the helmet, and what he didn't realize is the enemy was watching. The enemy was watching the way that the city was vulnerable and how they could come in down into the city and attack it, and it wouldn't be known uh, that they were being invaded. The second time the city was sacked, a watchman just didn't show up. That's how comfortable the city had come with their position in the world. And then in 17 AD, an earthquake came and just destroyed the city of Sardis. And the Roman emperor rebuilt the city of Sardis and brought it back to its glory. And this is where we find this message coming to the church, where the church begins to take on the persona of the city in which it's surrounded by. The church has much riches, they have a long, large congregation. They look like a church. But Jesus says to them, you are alive. You have a reputation of being alive. So just like the city of Sardis had the reputation that you're an impregnable city, the church took on that persona and said, we are safe in the arms of God. We are safe because we are doing what pleases God. See where their trust is? Their trust and their dependence is not, is not in Christ Jesus, but it is in what they do. And because what they were doing, they were hearing from all the other churches around them, look how much of a lively church the church of Sardis is. And Jesus would say, no, you have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. 
In essence, what Jesus was saying is that you are a church in name only. The title of this message is The Sincere Church. Well, Sardis was not the sincere church. By God's grace, we're going to look in the mirror of the text today to see what a sincere church is not so that we can know what a sincere church should be. Because the Lord, it's going to be a message that's going to pierce our heart today, I pray. It's going to be where we must understand that the word of God is a two-edged sword. And when it pierces us, it pierces going in and it pierces going out. In the church of Sardis, it must have pierced them if they would awake, if they would heed the warning of Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is going to give three things that says here of what a sincere church is. And what we see is a church that's not complete. It's not complete. They have some of the things that are needed, but they don't have all the things that are needed. They have partial uh, life within them, but they don't have full life in them. And so we're going to look at three points today to know what a sincere church is. A sincere church is more than a name. You can't just call yourself church and be the church. The sincere church is also more than just going through the motions. You can't just be doing the practice and living off of that. And the third thing is the church is more than individuals. The church is not just made up of a few committed believers, and that's what makes up the body of the church. We see here that Jesus is speaking to an entire church, but yet he's going to speak to the few that are within the church. And so <clears throat> what we see that he says here is that I know your works. They weren't without works. That's, what, that's the part <clears throat> that should trouble us or stir us up. Because every time that Jesus points out the deeds or the works of all the other churches, he tells them what's good about it. In this case, or what's wrong with it. Here, he doesn't say any of that. He just says, I know your works. I know you got them. I know you got them. But what I discern is, is that you have a reputation of being alive. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The works are, are fooling everyone outside. That they would say, that's a church. Look at what they're doing. They meet, they worship, they come together. They're a big body of believers. They're rich. They're given to the poor. They're doing all the things that you would expect a church to do. But yet Jesus is saying, but you're not alive. You're dead. You're dead. <clears throat> that has to be troubling to all churches to hear that. Because nowhere do we see that there was any heresy. There was no false doctrine. There was no tolerating the Nicolaitans. There's no tolerating Jezebel. There's no tolerating the prophet of Balaam. So that wasn't Sardis' problem. They knew the scriptures. In a way, we could probably assume they had a rich theology, but they were teaching the word of God. They just weren't living the word of God. Okay, so we're going to talk about that and to come to understand exactly 
what Jesus is saying to the church. And in the end, what Jesus is really saying to the church of Sardis is you are a living contradiction. You are a living contradiction. You are saying that you are something which you are not. You are, in a way, clearly you're drinking the Kool-Aid that everybody else is telling you you're a faithful, lively church. It's not by mistake that he uses those contrasts of alive and dead. Alive meaning you're lively, okay? In many ways, we can define what that liveliness is in a church. Do we have an a active membership? Do we have a, a, a motivating worship service? Do we have a, a problem with giving within the church? All those things are good. But Jesus is saying that that's not the thing that I judge. What I judge is your heart. What I judge is your heart. And so he's saying to them that even though you're listening to others who say that you're alive, you're really dead. And what he's really there telling us is what Paul said in 2 Timothy verses three, chapter 3, verses 5, that you have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Deny its power. This church was living outward as if it knew God. More importantly, what Jesus is saying, this church is living as if it has the spirit of God. Because for a church to be alive, they must have the spirit of God residing within it. The spirit of God must not only be just in name or in discussion, but it must be dwelling in the people of God, within the body of the fellowship that makes up that institution called the church. And so the, the, the indictment that Jesus was bringing down upon Sardis is that you're doing everything right on the outside, but your problem is what is wrong on the inside. That's something that we as Christians have to really be mindful of. We can convince ourselves that we are right with God by what we do and not in whom we believe. We believe that Jesus died upon the cross for us to make us clean, that we can be acceptable to God, but then we begin to trust what we do and the praise of others and how others say to us, wow, you're really a strong and committed Christian, and we begin to rest upon our laurels, just like the bride in the Song of Solomon became drunk with the love of her beloved. She fell asleep. She became comfortable and complacent. So much, it was almost as if she was dead. And there, what happens? The beloved comes to stir up that love by one, by his absence, first of all. And second, by touching the latch of the door. You notice the myrrh that is dripping. She's grieving for her sorrow of the separation that she had with the beloved. But his love comes and touches her to awake her. And there we see that same picture as that. It seems harsh for what Jesus is doing here. He's saying to the church of Sardis, you're alive. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And now I'm telling you, wake up. Wake up. And so it's important for us that we don't take on the persona of Sardis, that we're an impregnable city, that the enemy could never overcome us. We're safe. We're safe. 
in the arms of God because we're trusting how we're living and we're not trusting in the life that is given. We are not dwelling in the life that was given. So let us look of how we can know whether or not we're a dead church. There's seven ways that I just want to discuss shortly that we can know that we're a dead church and we just have the name that we're alive. The first is that we're separated from the power of God. We begin to become self-sufficient. We rely on our programs. We rely on our funding. We rely on the pastor of our church. We rely on others in our church. But nowhere do we have a dependence upon the sovereignty of God. The way that we become a dead church or are going to know that we're a dead church, but with the reputation that we're alive is that we're separated from the power of God. We just give a wink and nod that our God is powerful. We don't really believe it. We don't really cling to it. If we as a congregation are going to stand against all the generation's attacks that are going to come, and they will, we will not be able to stand in our own power. We must stand in the power of God. If we are separated from the power of God, because that's what death is, in the end, after the day of judgment comes, those that are alive will be joined with God in Christ Jesus. And those who are not alive with God, that are not in fellowship, joined with God, will be separated from him in eternal death. And so Jesus is saying to the church, you who have a name that you're alive, you're dead, you're separated from me. You're separated from the God that you say you love. And how do I know? Because you're separated from the power of God. You have a form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof. Godliness takes over your life, delivers you from sin that you no longer desire to serve sin or follow sin. Sin isn't an option in your life. It will occur in your life, but you grieve over that sin. You don't just turn a blind eye to it. You fall down before your Savior and you confess your sin, knowing, God, I've fallen short and I need your power to deliver me, to save me. The second way that you know that you're a dead church is you're separated from the love of God. You're separated from the love of God. You don't just simply come theologically and say, I know God loves his people. Because you can do that. You can begin to take your love for granted. Think about any relationship you've ever been in. That you begin to take the love of your spouse or your other, your other friend or someone in your family for granted. What happens? You become cold, hard, and unmoved by the depth of their love. It's the same way for the church and for a Christian. As you become lovesick and don't realize the depth of God's love and don't meditate upon the depth of God's love, you become cold, hard, and unmoved. You go through the, the, the rituals of religion that people would say, you're a church, but yet Jesus looks into your heart and says, you don't have any love for me. The third way that you can know you're a dead church is you're separated from the knowledge of God. You know there is a God, but that doesn't call you to a different life. 
That doesn't call you to bow down before your creator and say, God, what do you want? So much of life in this world is us telling, uh, telling God we know better and believing that God is going to give up his throne for us. It's not realizing who God is. It's not knowing God. It's not understanding that God is a glorious God and his character is above all of his creation, telling us that he is over all things. And who are we to answer against him? Submission, something that we don't like to do in this world. But the church is to submit to who God is. We are to know who God is. The fourth way that you can know you're a dead church is you're separated from the will of God. That means that we're zealous for our wants and needs, but not God's purposes. We want people to look at us as a lively church. We don't want the offense that comes with being a lively church in a spiritual way. That means that we are so full with Christ in us that what the gospel does is bring the offense of salvation before the world. The cross is not a beautiful message. It is to those who are saved by it. But to the world, it's just foolishness. It's foolishness. It speaks about a weakness of a God who would abuse his son, basically, to bring about salvation of others who don't deserve it, that have to rely upon the work of another and not rely upon their works. Because the wisdom of the world is that I can do what's good enough to please God. And God is going to basically give up his throne that I can have my will and not bow to his. And so a church has to be mindful that always before them is the will of God. What is the will of God? Where is the will of God? It is in his word. The fifth way that you can be, know that you're a dead church is you're separated from the grace of God. Separated from the grace of God. This is the one that has undone many churches throughout all the ages. That they've started in grace, but they've added works to that grace and therefore denied what grace truly is. That grace is the unmerited favor of God that because you are an enemy and you are against him, and everything in your life is against him. He saved you anyways. He delivered you anyways. To bring down the walls that were the obstacles to living a life that pleased him. And so to be separated from the grace of God is works righteousness. You seek righteousness by what you do. You earn it not by what you receive in Christ Jesus. The sixth way is you're separated from the holiness of God. God is a holy God and he demands holiness. The church cannot forget that. That God is not winking at his people living loosely with their theology or with their word and practicing however they want to live entertaining worldly philosophies, following the ideologies of this world that will bring condemnation down upon it if it doesn't see the light of the gospel and the salvation in Jesus Christ. So separated from the holiness of God that we defile the Christian life in heart, 
and in practice. That simply all we're doing is cleaning the outside and leaving the inside dirty and filthy. That's how the Pharisees lived. That's how the Pharisees believed that they had a right acceptance or relationship with God. As I'm practicing correctly outwardly, can't you see it? But yet God knew their heart. Jesus knows their heart. The final thing of how we know we have a dead church is that we're separated from the life of God. It's the very definition of death, dead, is to be separated from life, the absence of life. And what we mean there is you are abandoned in the eternal perspective of life. You don't have at the forefront the end. You're living as if the end doesn't matter. And how many of our friends and our family are living that way? All I care about is what I'm going to do today. It's not a big issue of what's going to happen in the end when I stand before the judgment seat of God and I answer for everything that I do in this body. It's what the word of God says. The church's message is to be that, to call people to a hope. There's no hope if you have to look and truly grasp and really obtain what's going to happen at the day of judgment, that you're going to stand before your holy God, your holy creator, and you're going to answer for every sin that you've committed in your life. And you don't have an answer for it because none of us have an answer for it except Christ Jesus. Except Christ Jesus is our answer. He died for me. He delivers me. If the church is separated from that and all that matters is their outward appearance or their outward works, it will be a dead church. It will be alive but dead. And you say, well, how can that possibly be? that you can be alive and dead at the same time. Many years ago, father that I love, my dad, he went through a serious medical problem. He was dying of congestive heart failure. Dying of congestive heart failure. He seemed to be living on the outside, but he was dying on the inside. And when it came time that he had to deal with that, he would go to the surgeon and the surgeon would have a conversation with him. My dad was a firm believer in the absolute sovereignty of God. He is. But sometimes believing in the absolute sovereignty of God, we can deny the ways that God would bring about his sovereign will. We would deny the ways, the means of God's sovereignty. And the surgeon came to him and told him the surgery that he needed. And it was going to be a risky surgery. It's a good chance he wasn't going to make it out of it. And so my dad had resolved in himself, well, the Lord wants me to live, I'll be okay. And he was going to forgo the surgery. And the surgeon looked right at him and said, you're a dead man. That's what Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis. You're living, you're breathing right now, but you're as good as dead. You're as good as dead. And when we talk about open heart surgery, what takes place there, if I get all this right, is basically your heart is disconnected from your body and it dies. It stops beating. And the temperature is brought down to keep the tissue alive, even though part of the tissue is already dead. It's already died. And you're hooked up to this bypass machine, which is pumping blood and oxygen and keeping your life, keeping your body alive, doing the job of the heart until your heart can be restored and put back into its functioning place. That's what Jesus is doing here. 
He's disconnecting the heart and saying, you're living by a diseased heart that needs to be repaired, that needs to be brought back, restored to its natural function so that you can live. And he's saying to the church of Sardis, you're alive, but you're as good as dead. You're alive, but you're as good as dead. And so we've got to wake up as a church throughout all the world, whoever it is that names the name of Christ, that proclaims that they are a church and hear greater hope, we have to ask ourselves, are we a living contradiction? Are we living on the outside but dead on the inside? Do you say you are a Christian but inwardly your motivations say differently? Is your heart for God already dying or is it already dead? Is our reputation more important than God's glory? And really what we have to ask is what will you give up for God to be glorified? What are you holding on to in this world? A reputation, a name, at the expense of God's glory? Because if we are, then we're a dead church. We're not alive. The second thing that we need to hear is that we're more than just going through the motions. We have to ask, is there heart in our faith? Do we have a passion and commitment like you saw in the Song of Solomon? When the bride finally woke up, when the bride finally woke up, she was about her business. She wanted to find the beloved, even at the expense of being beaten by the watchman. That you go by your religious ways and you try to find God, the law will beat you down and say you don't have a relationship with God in yourself. The law points you to Christ Jesus who answers the law. But if you try to live by the law, the watchman is going to beat you down. The watchman of God's righteousness. No matter what your intentions are and your desires, that I, I desire to live righteously and I'm going to get that righteousness by what I do. Remember, Sardis didn't lack any deeds. Jesus knew their deeds. But Jesus rebuked Sardis for not having deeds or work that were complete in the sight of God. That's what we see there in verse 2. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Think of Cain and Abel. What took place there? Cain brought the sacrifice to God. To God, it just wasn't complete. Abel brought the sacrifice that was full. It was complete. It was done outwardly and done with the heart because Abel brought his best. Cain just said, I'm going through the motions. And God rejected Cain. And so the church of Sardis, are you just going through the motions? And then Jesus says that, that, that word there, that your works are not complete in Greek, what that means, it's hollow. It has no substance. It's a shell. On the outside, it looks like it is something, but if you dug down deeper and you looked inside, you'd find nothing. There's no substance for why you do the things that you do. You're just going through the motions. You're a mindless robot being uh, persuaded by the religion conviction. And so Jesus was saying there was no heart in them. You're merely doing duty and simply going through the motions. 
And so Jesus doesn't leave them in that estate. You can see just the love and the grace of Jesus, even though sometimes it comes through harsh words, it seems, things that are not comfortable to us. Jesus isn't just going to say to you, who's over here, just comfortable in your life and thinking that everything is all right. He's going to say, wake up, wake up, wake up, is what Jesus says. Wake up. When he called Lazarus out of the grave, he didn't say, Lazarus, just come on forth. Lazarus, come forth. He called them him by name to come out of his dead estate, to come into the living again. And so for the church of Sardis, wake up and do what? Strengthen what remains and is about to die. When my dad went through that surgery after he recovered, thanks be to God, he had a lot of dead tissue in his heart, but the cardiologist said, work around the muscles on the outside. All the work that you can do to work and strengthen what is still there. That's the same picture for the church. Your heart is still present. Work the muscles. Do what is necessary to strengthen what remains. And the way you do that, Jesus gives three things. Remember then what you received and heard. Notice, they received the word of God. They received the gospel. Then remember it, but also keep it. Keep what you received and heard. And the third thing is repent. Turn from your incomplete ways, your hollow ways, and do everything to the glory of God. So the church of Sardis wasn't left in their deadness. They were given the remedy. Would they deny the problem and turn away from the care that would be given by the great physician? Here the great physician says to them, remember it. That's how you return back to God, is remember the gospel who saved you in the beginning. As one, the churches are being told, return to your first love. Get intimate with Christ. Know who Christ is. Christ is the one who loved you when you didn't love him. Christ was the one who laid down his life for an enemy of his. But yet God brought his salvation in this world not to condemn you, but to deliver you. And when you remember it, keep it, hold fast to it. Cling to the written word of God. Cling to what the word of God says. Not simply just in the word itself and in the deeds and the spirit of it. The word of God is power. Believe that as a church. The word of God in itself, no matter if it's being handled by a fool like me, brings about power. It has power because it is the written word of God of the spirit of God. And then when that has been clinged to and held to, turn from your ways. Turn from your ways. And the consequence is if they don't repent, they're going to come into judgment. Sardis would understand that language very clearly because what happened, the enemies saw their vulnerability and entered into the middle of the night to take the, king, take the city, to take away their riches and their wealth. And Jesus was saying to the church of Sardis, if you don't wake up, everything that you have, you're going to lose and you're not going to know the hour when that happens. And so Sardis was, again, depending upon their works and their reputation to please God. We can almost hear that language. 
that for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. That was what was important to Sardis, is that what they were doing, that God would accept it on the merits of their work, on the merits by virtue of what they did. And as we hear that, church, we should remember the words of Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. This is a hard saying here, what's being said to the church of Sardis. But the words that came, that Jesus spoke to those who, the many who will come in his name and recount their works, such people consider themselves to be Christians. And what will they say on the day of judgment when they come to Christ Jesus? Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these things in your name? Things such as prophesy in your name, drive out demons, perform many miracles in your name, but yet Christ will tell them these chilling words, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You used my name, but you did not know my love. That word know, you, I don't know you. Depart from me, I never knew you, is love language. It's the love language that's saying, you are my beloved, and I am yours. And the beloved is mine. But there Jesus is saying that you came to me by your works, and you even used my name to do those works thinking that that would be acceptable in your sight. But that's not what Jesus says. He says to them, basically, you were pleasing yourselves. You weren't seeking to please me. You were seeking to please yourselves. You were seeking to justify yourselves. And so we as a church need to be mindful of these things, that we're not just out there to please ourselves. Are we, one, seeking the praise of others? Is that our first motivation? That seemed to be a big issue in Sardis. And really the question we have to ask is whose attention are we trying to get? God's or the world's? If God is happy and the world is not, are we okay with that? Because as a church, we better be ready to stand with that understanding. We're going to take positions in this world that many aren't going to like, but God is pleased with. God is pleased with. For the issue is sanctity of life. What is your position on the sanctity of life? What is your position upon how many genders God created? How, what is your position on God being the creator? All these things that stand against the truth of the scripture, are you willing to stand in it, even if it's not popular? Second, are we working for God out of duty and not love and commitment to God's holy name? Legalism. We hear what God demands and calls us to. The word of God is not silent on that. He calls us to love him and the way that we love him is we keep his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Live a holy life. Be my holy people. Those who are my people are a holy people. And therefore, since I am holy, you are to be holy. You're to live a life 
that is rooted in the love of God. Because if you try to live that life apart from the love of God and you do it out of duty, you're going to be beaten just like the watchmen beat the, beloved, the loved one, the bride in the Song of Solomon. You're not going to win against the righteousness of the law by declaring that your righteousness belongs to you apart from Christ Jesus. The righteousness of the law, the commands of God, the Ten Commandments, if you will, but anything that God has said, do, and thou shalt live, that all that, that righteousness that's being demanded, you can't do it in yourself. Christ has done it for you. Go to him. Cling to him. Find him. That's the reason why he's the beloved. That's why the watchman should be about the city looking for the beloved Christ. Because he is more beautiful and precious than any other love. The third, are we finding security and satisfaction in outward appearances and neglecting the inward work of the Spirit? That can be one that trips us up all the time. We're more concerned with how we're growing outwardly and not how we're growing inwardly. Are we simply a superficial spiritual church? We have a superficial church life where everything is on the outside. It's shallow. It's surface oriented. And there is no depth within it. There's no deep rooted spiritual life. There is no belief or understanding that the spirit had to do work. Spirit had to do work to take out this diseased heart, do surgery on it, give me a new heart that I can be the child of God. And the fourth is, are we simply a religious practice versus a deep-hearted faith worship? When we come on Sunday morning, are we just going through a ritual of duty? Or do we really love our God? And we want to sing out at the top of our lungs, even if we may not have the most beautiful voices in the world because we want our God to hear his praise. Do we come to hear the preaching of the word out of duty or because we love the word of God? We are, we are starving for the power of God's salvation that we can only find in the word of God. And do we cling to the preaching of the word of God? Those things have to be brought down upon our soul. And we have to ask ourselves, is our heart in our faith? Because if we have a heartless faith, then we'll go through a religious ritual and practice. But if we have a faith that is motivated by the love and the grace of God, there will be a commitment and a passion that will flow from you like you will never believe. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're desiring. That's what we're searching for. So cry out to him and hold on to him. Our third and our final point today is that the sincere church is more than individuals. We see here that the commendation that comes to the church of Sardis there in verse 4 is not to the entire church, it's to a few. It says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name. You see there are four times in this letter the word name comes up. 
But because to Sardis, what was so important was that they had a good name from others. And Jesus redirects them and says, what's important is, is your name in the book of life. Is your name in the book of life. And you see this, this imagery of white, of white, this purity, it symbolizes purity. But in the Roman world, there's two ways that you could understand white, and you'll see one of the imageries come later in Revelation in the white stone. Is that when criminals came before the one that was adjudicating over a trial, they would have a black stone and they would have a white stone. And if, they, if you were innocent or found not guilty, then what would be revealed would be a white stone. In other words, you would be justified. You would receive the justification, and the sign of that is a white stone. The other way that the Romans would use white is whenever their armies would come back victorious as conquerors, they would choose a few that would be clothed in white robes that would line out the parade road, the way that the army would come in to symbolize the pure victory of the Romans. The church of Sardis would have known this imagery, would have known this imagery. And of course, the word of God shows over and over in the Son of Man, in the Ancient of Days, whiteness is the sign of God's purity and God's holiness. And so Jesus doesn't forget the few that would be condemned or rebuked by that language because they're alive. They hear the word of God. They hear that I'm to be made acceptable not by my works, but by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And here comes the rebuke of Jesus to speak to the church of Sardis and hear those few that are sitting among the congregation saying, what have we done wrong? But Jesus encourages the few. Jesus doesn't just leave them in their sin and their condemnation. But the reason why he commends them that we need to understand as a, as a church is that the few was not to be discouraged. Jesus does not come to discourage his people. He comes to encourage his people, to strengthen his people. The few should not give up hope. Whenever you hear uh, someone coming down or giving correction, you can get to a point where it's like hopeless. Why do I even continue if you're not going to recognize that I'm trying to live sincerely, God? But Jesus sees everything. Jesus, when he inspects the church, he doesn't just inspect the entire body. He inspects every individual in the church because he's God. He doesn't have the limitations that we do that we can only see in little bits of measure. Jesus sees it all at once. When he comes into walk around the candlesticks, rock among the candlesticks, he has seen every single member of the church, not simply of the church historically there or the church of Asia, but every single member of the church throughout the ages. He sees you. He sees in your heart. And he knows what your deeds are and what your works are. And so the few should be commended for their walk in this world. But the few are also to act as examples for the church, not excuses for the church. What I mean by that? That means every church has these few people in it, it seems, that are committed. They're living faithfully. Everybody can watch them and they pick it out. And they're saying, wow, look how dedicated they are. 
And that gives you the benefit of being a rich and vibrant church because you got a few committed members in your congregation. But Jesus is saying, the few do not make up the church. I rebuke the entire church. But yet these, even if they remain in this dead church, they're alive with me. They're already alive with me. And the way that I know they're alive with me, they are living their garments. They are re they're wearing the garments that they will once have in perfection in eternity. And they desire not to soil them. They desire not to be affected by the world's philosophy or the praise of others. They seek to glorify God, to show his purity before all the world. And the few are strengthened so they can help strengthen the entire church. It's possible to wear the robe of righteousness and be okay in this world. Because that's what that robe is, according to Isaiah. It's the robe, garment of salvation. The garment of salvation doesn't mean that I look to myself to save me. I look to another to save me. I look to Christ Jesus who gives me his righteousness because my righteousness isn't worth a darn. It's worth filthy rags, as the word of God says. But the righteousness of Christ is pure, white, perfected. Are you going to defile that garment by sinning against God and by making a mockery of his grace or by clinging to his grace? We are to be reminded and humbled that there is a sincere church throughout all the ages which is known only to God. The way that we know that is because Jesus says, have an eternal perspective, few. You that are among this dead church, have the eternal perspective that your name is not being blotted out of the book of life. And Daniel tells us in Daniel 12, 1, exactly what that book is. He said, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has a charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Written in the book. It's also used in Exodus 32 where God warns that the Israelites who have sinned against God, their name would be removed from the book of life. So you can see very clearly the connection that the names that are in the book of life are the names of God's people. The name of God's people that are only known to God. So therefore, as the church, we have to look with great hope and expectation that we want our names written there. But that's known to God, it's not known to us, so we declare the gospel. We declare the ways, the means of God's salvation to call lost sinners to him so that they can realize that their name is written in the book of life. So that you can realize that your name is written in the book of life. That reality or that experience is not going to come by trusting in yourself. If you're honest with yourself, there's no hope in it. If you trust in yourself to stand before a righteous God on the day of judgment and say, look at all the works I have done, then you will hear at the end, depart from me, I never knew you. But if Jesus confesses your name before the Father, in other words, Jesus is saying, my word is their word. The word that you're saying to God that I am your child, I have been faithful until the end, 
Your witness isn't good enough. But when Jesus stands up and says, that's my word. And he says, I confess that this one has come by my grace alone. He depends upon my life. She depends upon my salvation. Then that name, when it is spoken before the Father, you can have the assurance, no matter if you're part of a dead church, that you're living. And so you, dead church, recognize how life is judged by God. And wake up. Wake up. And the few, the individuals are not the church alone. The body, the remnant, because in the word of God, it speaks about those that, uh, of God's people, that there's always a remnant within the generation of the world where God's people are. And that is a picture of the universal church. There is a church found throughout all the world, throughout all the ages. It may be made up of a few. It may be made up of huge congregations. We don't know. But we know the qualification. And that is those who are clothed in the robe of righteousness that aren't going about their life sullying that garment. They can have the witness, the assurance that they are God's people. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we desire Jesus' commendation? Do we want to please him? Do we want to love relationship with Christ? That means living in obedience to him. Not pursuing our will, but pursuing God's will. By submitting to his authority and not having our desires and our convictions and our passions in this life. Is your walk with Christ more important than your walk with others in this world? That's the sign of being the few, the one of the faithful. Is that all the world, I can lose this entire world if that means I gain Christ. That must be our claim. That must be our profession. It will be the only thing that can save us. It is the only thing that a sinner can rely on is that Jesus is willing to save those who confess their sins and come before him seeking his righteousness alone apart from their righteousness. If we do, then let us wake up and let us lean upon Jesus who is the perfect savior, whose works are perfect and acceptable in the sight of God, which we receive by being in him, by believing and trusting in him. May God receive all the glory.